Jesus is coming back. Doesn't get any better than that, does it? Man, I love to worship with y'all. We could have just hung there, I think, all morning long and been just completely fine. Hey, turn your Bibles. Uh, we're going to start in Romans chapter 1 this morning. We're going to end up in 2 Peter, but we're going to kick off in Romans chapter 1. I took the Brian Grout challenge and I found my Bible. It was on a show. I know, right? I only have like 14 of them, but I couldn't find them, believe it or not. Because this has become my Bible. Anybody else? Like, this is just your thing? And so I thought, you know, maybe Brian's got a point, and I'll listen to him for a change. So I went and found my Bible. Um, anybody else find theirs? Anybody else still missing theirs? We could do that thing that they used to do back in the day. We stand up, we hold our Bibles up. This is my Bible. I believe it's true, right? You guys remember doing that? Some of you do, don't you? Well, it's good to be with you this morning. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Brian... Uh, is in Wyoming hunting elk and deer, I'm told. He already got his buffalo, Tatanka, out in, um, out in Wyoming. And so if you haven't seen it yet, jump on Facebook. It's on his page. It's a big old, I don't know how much those things weigh, but that thing's at least three or four times bigger than he is. So um, I'm told it's not really a hunt. It's more of a walk out there and shoot it, but I don't, I'm not doing it. So um, he can have all that he wants. Um, so last week, we kicked off a new series called Hold Fast. And uh, Brian kicked us in with talking about help being on the way and building a faith that lasts. So just to recoup a little bit about what he talked about last week, he talked about having a strong foundation for our faith or a plumb line. Any of you guys carpenters, anybody good at that kind of stuff? I'm not. I've never even heard of a plumb line. I had to look it up. I thought he was talking about fruit last week. He was going to hang like a piece of fruit from a piece of string or something, and that was going to be straight. Um, But he talked about a plumb line in our life and something that keeps us straight and keeps us on the straight and narrow And that thing is the Word of God and His righteousness that we get as a result of knowing Him, and it's His Word. So this word righteousness, I want to just dig in just a little bit into the word righteousness because it's one of those church words that, you know, we were told in the 80s we weren't supposed to use anymore, but we're bringing back because all things old are new. So the word righteousness comes from the Greek word, and I'm going to completely butcher this, but it's dikayusune. It almost sounds like Tatanka. It's a little bit maybe Indian, but no, it comes from the word Greek. And it's a noun, and it's a state of him who, who is as he ought to be or acceptable to God. So in a place where we're where we should be, we're in the center of God's will, we're walking with him, we're talking with him, we're communing with him, we're involved in the life of our church, we're growing, we're seeing God do things in our lives. And, and, and that's what he talks about is his righteousness. It's walking in integrity and virtue and purity of life in correctness of thinking and feeling and acting. And believe it or not, the word righteousness, that Greek word is mentioned 91 times in the New Testament. Um, And so it's obviously important because it was said a lot. And Brian made the point last week that we can grow as much as we want to. Remember him saying that? I can grow as much as I want to. I can be as righteous as I want to be. I can put in as much effort or as little effort as I want into my faith. And really you can because you know what? The only person who's going to know the difference is you. Um, unless you're just, you know, walking out there in some kind of weird world, nobody's going to know where you are in your righteousness. We can all walk in here on Sunday morning, and we can put our smiles on our faces, and we can put our hands in the air, and we can put our hands together, and we can clap, and we can say hi, and we can love on one another, and no one knows the difference in where you are in your walk with Jesus. So this morning's message is really personal to us in that way, uh, because we're the only ones who can really know where we are in our walk with Jesus. And I want us to really embrace that thought of, I can be as righteous as I want to be. I can walk as closely with God as I want to. It's really up to us. 
There's definitely an apathy that's sweeping our nation when it comes to our faith and our churches. There's an apathy. There's a lack of care. There's a lack of want to. There's a lack of drive. There's a lack of doing the hard thing uh, that it is to grow in our, in our walk with Christ. Um, and sometimes even in our own church, uh, we see a lack, of, a lack of push, a lack of I want to, a lack of um, involvement, even, even here at Three Trails at times. And it's something that we fight. It's something that we pray about. It's something we talk about in our staff meetings. How do we engage people with the gospel of Jesus? How do we further the gospel in people's lives? How do we get people to embrace? How do we get people to fall in love with the word of God? And it's, and it's something that, that, we, that, we just, that we toil over. It's something that we pray over. It's something that we focus on because everything revolves around that one thing, and that's growing in our faith with Jesus. And so today I'm going to ask that question, what is your foundation built on? And just as importantly, what does it continue to be built on? What did you begin with, and how are you continuing to build that foundation? Nothing. Listen, absolutely nothing we can engage with in our lives is as important as investing in our faith walk with Jesus. Let me say that again. Nothing, absolutely nothing we can engage in in our lives is as important as investing in our faith with Jesus. If you don't hear anything else today, hear that. Not your job, not your relationship with your spouse, not your children, not your neighbors, not your yard, not hunting season, not Christmas presents, not the Easter bunny. Nothing is more important in our lives than our faith walk with Jesus. We could really just walk out with that today and probably ponder for the week, okay, what does that mean in my life? Where does that put me? And as I sit here and evaluate where I am, and I don't know about you, but I've, I've, I've followed Jesus long enough that I, I get a pretty good feel for when I'm walking with him and when I'm not. Uh, when I'm not, I get, I get, I get, pretty, I get pretty edgy. Um, I, get, I get pretty not loving pretty, pretty quickly. Um, I get really judgy. Um, I, I'm, the, the biggest place it shows in my life, not about you, is on the highway. Um, when I'm not walking with Jesus, every driver on I-70 is going to hell, all of them. I, I, if one of you pulls up next to me, you're going to hell too, because this is my highway, and you're going to do what I say, right? Because we're always right. So that's in my, in my life, that's how I know like for sure um, where I'm going. My son-in-law would tell you too that my, you know, my humor gets a little sparky um, when I'm not quite walking maybe with Jesus. Um, and he's very quick to correct me and say, you're, you, you need to fix that, bro. Like That's just not good. So anyway, I don't know what your measure is, but we need a measure in our lives a baseline of where we are walking with Christ, and then as we continue to grow, that baseline continues to grow, right? We continue to set a a higher bar in our lives for how we live our lives. Have you ever had, I don't know if you've ever had these, have you ever had fake Oreos? This was in our Bible study this week that our worship team does together, and it just instantly brought like tears to my eyes. Have you ever had Hydrox Oreos? Okay. If you pick up an Oreo and you think you're having the most delicious cookie on the planet because that's what an Oreo is, it is a gift from God. It is a cream-filled gift from Jesus that was ordained. I don't know when he ordained it. It's not in Scripture, but I know he did, right? This Oreo, when you dip it in coffee or you dip it in, in your milk and you take a bite of that Oreo, there's nothing else like it. Am I right? There's nothing else like 
You take a Hydrox cookie, and I don't care what you dip it in, it tastes like somebody cooked it with poison. It is the grossest, nastiest piece of crap cookie you will ever eat in your life. It is just disgusting, this Hydrox cookie. It is not the real thing. And what Second Peter and Romans 1 are going to talk about today is the real thing. The difference between Jesus, the Oreo, and Hydrox, everything else. I wanted to bring Hydrox so bad today, but I thought, I'm not going to do that to y'all. I'm not going to make you eat a Hydrox cookie. That's just wrong. But if you eat a Hydrox cookie and then you eat an Oreo, you instantly know the difference between the real thing and the fake thing. And that's really what Second Peter is going to talk to us about today. Um, there was a Barna study done that asked this question, is Jesus the only way to heaven? Now, don't get your feathers ruffled because I'm going to use two words that some of you find very divisive. I'm going to use the word Republican, and I'm going to use the word Democrat, but we're not judging this morning. We're just simply looking at a study, okay? So everybody just deep breath. It's going to be okay. About 40% of those who identify as Republicans and 21% of those who identify as Democrats said their religion is the one true faith leading to eternal life in heaven. This is among Christians polled. Christians who called themselves Republicans or Christians who called themselves Democrats. Read it again. About 40% of those who identify as believers in the one true God, Jesus Christ, are as Republicans, and 21% of those who identify as believers in Jesus as Democrats said their religion is the one true faith leading to eternal life in heaven. 65% of those who identify as Democrats and 53% of those who identify as Republicans said many religions can lead to eternal life in heaven. 53% of Democrats said non-Christian faiths can lead to heaven, and 35% of Republicans agreed. Now, I don't care how you lean or what you think. Those are people who call themselves Christians and believers, and that's jacked up. There is one way to heaven, and that is Jesus. That's it. There's no other way. There's no other option. There's no other thing. There's nothing you can combine with it. It is Jesus and Jesus crucified. That's it. Period. End of story. All right? So let's just lay that out right now. Romans 125. Go ahead and jump there with me in your Bibles if you would. Romans 125 says this, and you can go back this week and you can read the previous verses to that. I'll recap those for you in just a second. But verse 25 says this, that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. The verses leading about this talk about what was going on in their culture ahead of this. The suppressing truth of, of God, that what needs to be known about God has been made plain. He talks about how that, that creation cries out and, and, and proclaims God, that, that, that we don't even need to look at Scripture, that, that creation is, is evidence of God, that they were exchanging the truth for a lie. And any time and in any way that we decide that the Word of God and His truth is not all that important, whether that's through... Um, his command to meditate on his word or being pure of mind and body and spirit, or uh, we worship a creative God, little g above God, big G, um, or, or gathering together or being united through community. Anytime we put anything above God's truth, we are exchanging God's truth for lies. Nothing good follows. All, all things that we see happening around us are things that are spelled out there in Romans 
chapter 1. Sexual impurity of every kind, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual or whatever sexual you want to put with it. Depraved minds. Depraved comes from the, word, the Greek word pathos, an affliction, an affliction of the mind, a wrong thinking, a wicked, evil, envy, murder, strife, gossip. All that stuff that we see going around us is, the, is our world and even people who call themselves believers exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Romans 1 and verse 32 ends with this. It says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue these things, but also approve of those who practice them. I don't care if it makes me popular or not, but the truth of God's word is the truth of God's word. And as a man called to preach the word of God, if that's offensive, it's offensive, but it's the word of God. And it is the truth. And it is not interchangeable. It is not exchangeable. To be clear, there's only one way to Jesus. John 14, 6, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Why, why is this a problem and why is it getting worse? Why do so many people who say they believe are clearly deceived? It's not just a sin problem. It's not just a personal problem. It's a church problem as a whole. It's an organizational problem. It's an organism problem. The church is both. And it's seeping into our churches and has seeped into to our lives through what we see going on around us. As we dig into Second Peter, I want you to keep this in mind that Jesus is speaking of the end times. He's speaking of the troubles that we're going to face. He's speaking of false teachers that are going to be put that are going to that are going to come out of the woodwork and, and false teachings and things that we, we see happening all around us now. And here's how it's happening. It's because we're picking up Jesus. Um, and, and just taking the parts that we like. We're, we're picking up Jesus, and, and yes, Jesus is love, but Jesus is also confrontational of sin because of his love. So Matthew 24, 22, and 23 says this, and, um, and I want, as, we, as we get ready to dig into Second Peter, I want to jump back to this because what's happening is, um, is, is Paul, Peter is, is addressing, and he's, and he's almost on his deathbed here in Second Peter. He's, he's towards the end of, the li- of his life, and we'll read that in just a moment, that he's almost come to the close of, of his ministry and his life, and he even says that God has told him that. Um, but part of this refers back to uh, Matthew 22, um, or 24, 22, and 23. It says, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened, the end days, the tribulation, the times that are to come cut short the destruction and the deception that's coming. He calls it an unequal distress since the beginning of time. Consider it the, consider the, the worst distress of human history. And I want you to think back through human history of the distress that we've even just experienced in, in the 19th and 20th centuries, right? We've, we've, had, we've had three major wars. We've had a depression where people couldn't, didn't have food. Um, we've, we've had a time where there was no cell phones, where, where there were no TVs, right? This stuff all came about, right? And that's, I mean, that's turmoil enough. Can you imagine living without air conditioning? I, I don't, God, God obviously knew what he was doing when he brought me into the world this time. But if you think about the turmoil of human history, way back even beyond that, and, and, and you think about what's happened over the course of our world, and just even jump back to Noah and the flood and the destruction that came with that, and, and the things that happened throughout the Old Testament, um, we just... We've seen nothing compared to what's to come. Verse 23 says, at, at this time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. 
For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, even us who would call ourselves believers. See, I've told you ahead of time, false prophets, and many abound now. You don't have to look much further than some of the, some of the major churches uh, that create a lot, sorry, that create a lot of our worship music. Um, there's a lot of false teaching going on within the world of worship, which is interesting to me because Satan, the deceiver, the liar himself was a worship leader. That's why you've got to watch out for guys like us. Some of you will get that on the way home. Um, there's deception and lies that are taking place, and much of it revolves around our feelings and our experiences that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. There's a prosperity gospel. There's an apostolic movement in places like Bethel Church and many others like it. There's a deception, a deception um, that isn't overtly evil, but anything that takes away or adds to Scripture is a false teaching. And we're going to come back to that. He says, you've been warned. And so the church is to be a light, a city on a hill in a dark world that lacks hope. And it matters the voices we listen to, and it matters where we get our belief in big G God as opposed to the little G gods that are out there and calling our name. Let's pray really quickly. God, as we dig into Second Peter um, and look at what you have to say here in these last few verses, um, I pray that um, as we see signs of you coming and as we see society unfold, and as we see um, the moral fabric of things unwrap, that you'll make clear to us, Father, who we should listen to and who we shouldn't, that you'll make clear to us the truth of your word versus the deception of Satan, and that it'll be very obvious to us as we seek you and, and follow you what it is we need to know and how we need to learn it. Uh, we thank you for what you're going to show us in these next few moments. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So we covered Second Peter 1, 1 through 11 last week. We're going to look through verse 12 with all of those things we just talked about kind of as the background of that. So verse 12 says this, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you, you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of a body, because I know that I'll soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So like I said, Peter's, Peter's facing the end of his life, and he wants to make sure that those who have come to Christ through his ministry of the apostles and his friends continues to live on. And so he writes this letter to them in warning of standing in the face of what's to come. There's a sense of urgency in his tone of, you know, I, I don't want you to forget these things. You're, you're rooted firmly now, but it's easy to get uprooted. Even though I know you know this, I'm going to remind you. Um, this was Peter. This was the same Peter who always had his foot in his mouth, the same Peter that denied Jesus three times. Um, this was, other than Paul, probably the greatest preacher, preacher of the time. He was the one who preached at, at Pentecost, and, and some 3,000 people came to Jesus that day. Um, he, was a, he was an amazing speaker for Jesus. And you can see the effects of it throughout his ministry. And the message to us is that we need to constantly be reminded of the truth. What he's saying is, listen, it doesn't matter how firmly rooted you are. I, you need to continually be reminded of the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And they didn't have a Bible then. So what they had was these letters. And whether or not these men knew that they were writing scripture as they were writing these letters, I don't know. 
But we do know that these are the things that were inspired by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit to be written down in these letters. And so these were the people of the time of Jesus. These were guys that walked with him. And how much more than if these people who saw the miracles of Jesus need to be reminded, do we need to be reminded, right? Peter speaks of his authority to teach about Jesus. In verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we were told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, you've got to jump back here for just a minute um, to Matthew. And when we look at this verse 17 and what he's talking about when they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's not making things up. He's saying, there's two things that I can come to you as an authority. First of all, my experience in walking with Jesus and my experience in, in having lived and walked and breathed and slept and, and done ministry with Jesus, there was experience in that. But he also witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. And that's what this verse 17 of Matthew is referring back to. And it says this, he received honor and glory from God the father from when when a voice came to him from the majestic glory saying this is my son whom i love with whom i am well pleased we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain so this was matthew 17 that he's referring back to and we'll jump back there in just a minute but he's saying look i saw god bless the ministry of jesus i saw moses and elijah standing there conversating with the son of god when he was transfigured when this thing happened, this reference here, and let me read back here, comes to verse 2 in Matthew 17, where he says, there he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his, and his clothes became as white as the light. And it's talking about Jesus when, when he met the Father on the top of the mountain. He took, he took his, his three most uh, closest disciples with him. Uh, he took Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain, and they witnessed this thing happen. The, the word transfigured here comes from the Greek word metamorpho, which doesn't take a whole lot of education to figure out. That means metamorphosis or to change, right? So you just, you, you knew Greek. You didn't even know you knew it this morning. You should give yourself a pat on the back. Way to go. You knew Greek this morning. It's excellent. They saw the, they saw the Father bless the ministry of Jesus along with Moses and Elijah. And Peter establishes his authority not only from that experience, but from his experience walking with him. This was also a picture of Jesus coming and return. And we're going to dig into that in a couple of weeks as Brian digs into chapter 3, and we'll, we'll get more into that um, and more in depth. But what was happening was Jesus was Peter's opponents were throwing this idea of Jesus' return, and, well, if he's coming back, then where is he? Why isn't he here yet? Why hasn't he come as, as proof that there was no Jesus, that none of this really happened? And so they were twisting the words of Scripture to say what they wanted him to say. But these guys were eyewitnesses to that. And the transfiguration points to three things about Jesus. First, it was the nature of the event. In, in verse 16, it was the power, the coming in the Greek that, that meant typically the future combined with this word power. Uh, it was the powerful coming uh, again in the future of Jesus. Yes, he came now, but he's also going to come again in the future. And then the second thing is that Jesus received honor and glory in verse 17. Honor, he received that, that exalted status and that heavenly radiance that, that God thrust upon him. And then the God the Father speaks of Jesus and he affirms that this is my son, and whom I'm pleased, to Peter, James, and John, who were with Jesus there to see it. So they saw this stuff happen. They were there, and they believed it. But what, you, but what you have to understand when we come back to this in just a minute is that experience meant nothing over Scripture in those days. You could experience whatever you want, but we want to go back to the prophets. We want to go back to the Old Testament. We want to go back to what we know to be the truth. And so in verse 19, 
of 2 Peter, it says this, we also have the prophetic message, here it is, as something completely reliable, and you do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star raises in your heart. So he says, not only do we have these experiences, but we also have the words of the prophets that point to Jesus as the Son of God and is coming again. Peter is an eyewitness, but also, and you've heard this saying, I know it's true because I experienced it. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Maybe you've said it yourself. I know it's true because I was there, because I experienced it. And so if it's experience, it must be truth. If it's an experience, then it must be right. If it's an experience and it happens somewhere in the walls of the church, then it must be God. Now, this is where we have to be careful, all right? Because experiences can be manipulated, all right? Worship can be manipulated. Our lives can be easily manipulated. I can tell you as someone who sits behind a piano week after week that it's, it's not hard to manipulate feelings. It's not hard to manipulate how we, how we feel in a moment or what we're experiencing in a moment with words and with music and how we do that. And what I want to point to you that as uh, being careful of that is our experiences can deceive us. Satan can use those things to twist the Word of God. And that's what the problem was that these guys were facing was, well, but we experienced it. But they're like, yeah, but that's not enough. And so, so Peter points to Scripture here, and he says, we also have the prophets. We also have the Old Testament that points to this. This is a basic for many of the false teachers. When you think about how reverse we are today, experience trumps truth. In those days, truth trumped experience. In our day, experience trumps truth. It's my reality. It's my right. It's my belief. It's my thought. This is what I think, so it's ultimately true. Truth is relative to who I am. And I remember when we first started saying that term, truth is relative, right? I remember when that kind of became a catchphrase within, within and without the Christian world, and, and, and people were saying, were saying um, that you know, truth is relative. And I remember my pastor growing up saying, well, you know, people just believe all truth is relative. And I thought, well, okay, I mean, sort of. But we see that more and more and more. Um, in the world where they, I just, just jump on social media for 15 minutes today and you'll see that truth is absolutely relative to your experience. And that's not at all what scripture calls us to do. And it's the basis for a lot of false teachers. Come experience Jesus. If, if, if I experience something, it must be true. Just, just experience Jesus. Just feel it. Once you feel it, it's all going to be okay. And that's not the truth of scripture. And I want to remind us that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's doing that in, in powerful ways in the church. And he's doing it specifically through worship. Romans 12.2 says this, Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the what? The renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and what is acceptable, and what is perfect. How do we judge an experience? How do we judge a feeling? We judge it against the Word of God. Does this experience line up with the Word of God? When I compare what I've seen or what I've heard to Scripture, does it line up, or is this a deception from our enemy? Is this something sent to take me off track from the truth of God's Word? And it's subtle. We don't notice we're off track until we're so far off track that we're looking over here going, wait a minute, what's everybody else doing over there? And we're off here somewhere by ourselves, lost in, in, in some kind of belief that isn't based on the Word of God. The constant of Scripture has to be the highest plane 
than in any other experience. Peter knew people of his time would believe prophecy before a story about a voice he heard on top of a mountain. And to be honest, if somebody came and said that to us, we would probably be like, you heard what on where? You climbed the top of Everest and God appeared to you and said what? The difference now is we have the word of God to compare that to. The difference now is we can look back and say, does that, what you say you heard at the top of that mountain line up with the word of God? And so he refers back to these prophecies about Jesus. They knew what people had been taught from the Old Testament, and he knew he could use that as leverage for for their experience. So they were using both. So our experiences aren't unimportant. I don't want you to hear that this morning. I just want you to hear that our experiences can be dangerous, okay? Peter Stoner took eight specific prophecies about Jesus. We talk about prophecies, and there were over 300 that were fulfilled by Jesus. There was a guy named Peter Stoner that wrote a book. And he took eight specific prophecies, and you can go back and look it up. Just write down Peter Stoner. You can go look at the eight prophecies that he he pulled out. But the the experiences of one man, the the, the chances of one man accidentally fulfilling these, just these eight, just these eight prophecies. Here's the number. Can you throw it up there, Madison? It's one one in ten to the 17th power. That is a huge number. That's one in 100 quadrillion of one man only fulfilling eight of the 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. There is no way that's by chance. And that's where we place our faith. And that's where we find our hope. And that's where we find the basis for for what we believe. Not just the authority of being an eyewitness, but also the authority of Scripture. The light shining and the day dawning is referring to Jesus, the second coming, the culmination of these verses in 16 through 18. And then we go down to verse 20. It says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Now, you need to hear this because there are a lot of guys out there and there are a lot of churches out there that are saying, I am reinterpreting the Word of God. I am reinter- I have journals. There, is, there, there, and I, there are ministries that are dangerous. And they're dangerous because... It's false. There's a guy named Bill Johnson, and you might have heard of him, but he has journals and books and books and books of what he says God has revealed to him over and above Scripture, over and above what the Word of God says. This is my reinterpretation of what God has to say to us. The danger of that is it's really attractive. For those of us who, especially those of us who I don't remember if it's right-brained or left-brained, but those of us who tend to function from a, a place of emotion, it's really dangerous because God says, this is the final authority. This is, the, this is it. We're not gonna, I'm not giving more I have given you the canon. I have given you the gospel. This is what we follow. And when we begin to, to reinterpret things, when we begin to, to, to do things and say things that don't line up with the Word of God, when, when one thing comes from a ministry that doesn't line up from the Word of God, and that ministry is called out for it, and repentance doesn't happen, that is the moment that you turn and run. The moment that you turn and run from that false teaching. Verse 20 tells us that the prophets, this wasn't their own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 tells us that Scripture is authoritative. 
In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that the Word of God comes from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If you want the Holy Spirit to speak in your life, read the Word of God, because this is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. We can go try to find experiences, and we can go try to find things where we feel this Jesus thing or, or whatever it is, but the Holy Spirit speaks through His Word first and foremost. If you want to hear from the Holy Spirit, you have to get into the Word of God. And then He will speak to you out of the truth of what He's already revealed about Himself. Does that make sense? You can't put the cart before the horse. You can't put the experience and the feeling before Scripture. You can't put what you think you heard God say before what He's already said. We have to go to what He said, and then we can hear from Him based on the Word of God. This word interpretation that we read in verse 20, I know I'm throwing out a bunch of Greek stuff, but it matters because these words are important. It comes from a word, epiliosis. It's a noun, and it's only used this one time in Scripture. It's used in other places as a verb, but in this place, it's used as a noun, as a thing, as something that's, you know, it's, it's a rock. It's, it's used as a verb in these other places, but it means to unravel a problem, all right? This word interpretation means to unravel a problem. In other words, it's not active. It's there. It's not a verb. It's not something that we do. It's something that's already been done, all right? So, so in other words, we don't interpret Scripture on a personal whim because it's already been done for us, because the Holy Spirit already spoke it. It's already here. Verse 21 says, for prophecy, I'm going to read it again, never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Scripture didn't come from, from man, it came from the Holy Spirit. We can't just unravel Scripture for our own purposes. And, and here's some examples of that. You, you, can get, you can get a million different books that you can spend your quiet time and your devotion time reading, all right? You get up in the morning, get up in the afternoon, whatever it is. Whenever it is, you read your Bible during the day. Um, and, and look at God's Word. This has to come first, and then the devotion comes after it. It's really tempting to read devotions and just sort of skip the Scripture because, well, I've already read that before. But you have to read the Scripture first, and then you read the interpretation, and then you compare the interpretation back to Scripture because it, there's a lot of those devotions, a lot of things out there that aren't based on the solid Word of God. And so it's really easy to get off on it. It's like, it would be like a small group coming together as our group meets on Sundays after church. And it would be like me saying, hey, what do you all think about this verse of, this, this verse of Scripture? And Logan says one thing, and Mike says another, and, 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 uh, and Sarah says another. And they're all different. And we never come back and look at the Word of God and say, yeah, but, but, but what does Scripture say about this? It's great to think what you think, but we have to come back to the Word of God and look at what it says about what we think, and then square what we, how we believe God is, is shaping that Scripture around what it actually says. It'd be like, or, or be like me standing up here and, and using a text to go off on, on some, some sin, some just one thing, and using the Bible as a bully pulpit, which happens, unfortunately. But we have to come back to the Scripture. The entire idea of Second Peter is to be ready for what's to come, to lay a firm foundation, like Brian talked about, a plumb line. And that plumb line is Scripture. It is the Word of God. It's not just in light of His coming. It's about everything that Scripture has to say. So, so what? So our lives have to be wrapped around this. 
Everything has to be viewed in, in the view of Scripture. Nothing else is above it, no study of it. Nothing should come before it in our lives. Everything the church we do should be centered around it, everything that happens. Verse 19, don't, it, do well to pay attention to it. Embrace and follow it, right? Do well on the backside of this. Scripture is a light in a dark place. It's light in the darkness. So don't stay in the dark. Like, why would we want to stay in the dark when we can walk into the light? Light's a beautiful thing. I can tell you after being, like, completely blind for several weeks last summer, there's nothing better than the illumination of light. If we turn off all the lights in here, it gets really confusing. Right? It gets, it gets very odd. It, it makes things feel weird. It makes things feel off. It, it's, it's a sense that when we don't have light, that confuses our brains. And then we see the light, and we realize, oh, look what's around me. Look what, look what, look what I can see. Look what's happening. And that's what Scripture is compared to. And, and the light of Scripture sustains us no matter our circumstances. It sustains us through our finances. It sustains us in our relationships. It, re- it sustains us uh, when, when we have problems with our kids. It sustains us when we have problems in our marriage. It sustains us when we have problems with our church. It sustains us because it is truth. It is truth, and it is light. I really hate it when people say to me, I don't have time to study the Bible. I, I just, I really want to kick you in the teeth. I know that sounds horrible, but that, it is the most idiotic thing anybody can say. I don't have time to, how do you have time for anything but? How do I have time to stop by Starbucks, but I don't have 10 minutes to open up the Word of God? How do I have time to go play golf, but I can't open up the Word of God? How do I have time to come to a worship rehearsal, but I don't have time to spend with the Word of God? How do, I not ha- How do we not make that a priority in our lives? And then we wonder why our lives are a disaster. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, one of, one of the things um, as a pastor that we get to do sometimes is counseling. I hate counseling. And let me tell you why I hate counseling. Here's how it sets up. Somebody comes and sits here at the table, and I, what's going on? Well, I just, man, my marriage is a wreck, and I can't, I can't figure it out. I can't figure out what to do. And so we open up the Word of God, and we, and we talk. And I, and, I, and I share, these are some steps you can take. And they, and they, okay, man, that's great. Thank you so much. I'm so excited about what God's Word has to say. I'm, thank you for, you know, let, okay, we pray together. And they leave. And they come back the next week, and they sit across the desk from me, and I say, man, how did that stuff go? I don't know. I didn't do it. Okay, get out of my office. It's, and, and, I, and I really feel like that's what God is saying to us. Don't stop being an idiot. Pick up, I, serious, I, I know nobody talks like this. I'm one of those few pastors that gets away with it. But seriously, pick it up. Shut up and pick it up. Look at the Word of God and find the solution to your problems. Look at the Word of God and get involved with others in the church so that they can walk through you in light of God's Word. Get involved. Let God be the center of your life. And I promise you, it won't be easy, but you'll have God by your side, and you'll have a community of people that will walk with you. This is a hospital. 
This ain't a country club. If you're struggling, you're in the right place. And if that's not true, then we should lock our doors, walk out, and never come back in this building again until we're ready to represent the truth of who Jesus is. Because he is the healer. He is our foundation. He is the rock upon which our church is built. And when that stops being true in our lives, when it stops being true in your lives, guess who that finger points at? Your two pastors that stand up here and preach. You think we don't take seriously that we want you to grow? There's nothing more frustrating than people who won't engage with Jesus because he is the answer. Lord God, man, I was humbled this week as I read through this. And as I tried to unpack these verses and try to make them make sense to myself and my own life, God, I, three weeks of just what am I going to talk about? What are, what are you trying to say here? Like there's nothing in these verses. What in the world? Why, why did Brian stick me with this? But God, you have revealed yourself so powerfully to me in my own life. God, for the times when I struggle, and I don't go back to your word, for the times when things are awesome, and I don't go back to your word, for the times that I'm, I'm, I'm driving down the highway and just spewing hate, and I don't come back to your word, for the times that I forget that you've forgiven me, and how dare I not forgive others. God, the truth of your word in the face of the calamity and disaster that's to come in our world. And God, I don't know if it's in our lifetime or not, but Lord, you said treat it like it is. Treat it like you're coming back tomorrow. And Lord, God, we pray that we'll be raptured and taken away with you. But Lord, if that's not true and if we have to face what's to come and what's going to come before that ever happens. Because, God, we may think it's bad now, <laughs> but it's only getting worse. And we are the light. We are the light because you placed your light in us, because you placed your Holy Spirit in us, because you called us to light up the darkness, to clear the confusion God, I pray that you'll protect us from false teachers. I pray, God, that we will measure everything that we hear and everything that we read and everything we say, especially in Christian circles, to your word. God, that when we're confused, that we'll go to the pastors and elders of our church, God, and we will, we will find the truth, that we won't settle for a lie. God, there's no, absolutely no doubt as we sit here this morning, there are some of us who need to get serious about our walk with you. God, there are those of us who are sitting here this morning that really, really can't find our Bible. And even if we did, we, we, we're not sure we'd know what to do with it. God, there are those of us who need to read your word, even if it's a verse in the morning, and meditate on that verse throughout the day, and let that verse penetrate our lives, because as that verse penetrates our lives, Lord Jesus, your Holy Spirit penetrates our lives.
and you walk with us, and you talk with us, and you guide us, and you convict us, and you make all things new. There are those here this morning who, for whatever reason, and I know the numbers, are not involved in a life group. Holy 40 of our 70 typical Sunday morning attendants are involved in a life group. God, I don't think that pleases you. I think you want us involved in community. I think without community, God, we don't have unity. God, I think if we don't have each other, we're asking for trouble. So, God, if there are those here this morning that need to get involved in a life group, God, it's not too late. There's, there's, there's four of them. God, if that's our next step this morning. Lord God, if we need to step into the baptismal waters the next time that we fill that tank and say to the world, I have followed Jesus and I am proclaiming it to the world, that that would be our next step this morning. God, whatever you are calling us to, that we would take the step, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much it may cost us, to follow you. You are the answer. In Jesus' name, amen.